0: Let's get you some fresh water. How I'm close
1: ba- to the mic do I need to be? Six, About six inches or so would be good.
0: Okay. If you need to shuffle your chair, then go for it. It's not on wheels, so you might have to just give it a bit of a nudge.
1: No, it is on wheels. Oh, cool. Right. I was, oh, you got the wheelchair. I've got the wheel. Oh, one. Oh, sorry. I've no, stolen the good. best chair.
0: No, it's uh, it's my height. If I sit in one that's too tall, I look a bit like a freak on the camera. Oh, okay. Yeah.
1: You have to think about these things now, I do. don't well, you? After, yeah.
0: After <laughs> a, a numerous episodes, you kind of thinking why do I look so big and then you realise the chair's propped up uh, I've even brought a giant flask because I thought we'd be talking for a while excellent um, one of the things that excited me was that you referred to yourself as a psychology nerd yes on your website yeah and I do the same okay so I thought, yeah so I thought we'd talk about that because we're rolling by the way I always do this with guests that are like, have you hit record yet Alex I'm like yeah we're on um, okay. I actually met you a while ago uh, at TEDx yes uh, and it was only when you mentioned it that I knew so that was cool so we've actually already met
1: yes we Where have. You do it your was talk? very very briefly you did I think it was one of my rehearsal talks I oh, was I think it? it might have been yeah
0: ah maybe I didn't go to the actual event then this was a long yeah. time ago
1: it was it was it... Graham
0: Hall was there the dog father
1: yes nice. and
0: there was another lady there who used to come to the gym that I owned at the time I can't remember her name because I didn't train her but yeah um, maybe it was a rehearsal
1: Yes, I think I might have bitch. been. Yes, <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah. So, what did you talk about?
1: Uh, I talked about um, how surviving sexual abuse can be the making, not the breaking, of you. Okay. So that was. So it was quite a hard-hitting subject. Yeah. Um, so I kind of preempted it with a bit of a, you know, this is a huge taboo subject that most people really don't want to have to discuss so let me share my story and then perhaps people can understand a little bit about what it's like as a survivor as you kind of go on that journey of unpicking what happened and who you actually really are
0: yeah so what what's the tipping point for when you decide like I'm gonna start to talk about this publicly like because obviously it's a difficult thing for you to talk about I guess Mm. it's difficult for people to listen to sometimes as well
1: I think it's harder for people to listen to than it is for me to talk about yes
0: I do you not think it's all stages of where you're at at that precise time? So uh, yeah. although it'd be difficult for me to hear you talk about it, I'd be very open to listen to it because mm-hmm. it's a struggle mm. and that's something I'd l- perversely enjoy mm-hmm. listening to because it's relatable. Yeah. So I think a lot of it's timing. But there must be a timing thing for you where you think, right, I'm going to go on stage, yeah, all the lights on me, pressure, and I'm going to talk about some of the horrible experiences I've been through.
1: Yeah. Oh there was definitely yeah there's a there's a turning point I guess in 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 the therapy side of it in terms of when you feel ready to so it was you know it was a massive secret that only I knew for for most of my life um and then through the therapy work actually that I did with SafeLine mm. that was that was what started to change it the difference for me was was having seen other therapists going to SafeLine where they specialise in helping and supporting survivors of sexual abuse and their family and friends, if needed. Um, but going to somebody who, or going to an organisation, a charity, a Safeline, are where all of the counsellors are specifically trained to understand how you were scarred through that experience. Yeah. Um is what really made the difference for me. I'd seen other other counsellors and, and psychologists, um, but they just never quite understood the legacy that you get having been through uh, sexual abuse as a child. Um, and Safeline did, and and their counsellors did. And that that was the tipping point for me was, I'd still had a good few years of therapy sort of on and off at times through Safeline, um, just as you you know it's it's the layers of the onion, as all counseling is described as, you've got to keep mm. getting but i I got to a point where I owned my story, I was able to absorb what happened to me and understand it as part of who I am now and how it's changed me um rather than I think previously it had been something that I sort of dragged around, and that's the difficult thing is you have to kind of really clean out the the wound um, and let it heal really properly. And and that was the point when I I sort of felt that nobody was really talking about it. There wasn't, for want of a better phrase, there wasn't a face of sexual abuse out there. Um, And that was the point for me as I just thought, well, there's lots of people out there that are suffering in silence like I had done. What would it mean to them if they heard somebody share their story and they could then say, but that's how I feel but she doesn't feel like that anymore. So what, maybe that's possible for me.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And was it part of the the healing process for you to go on stage and talk? Because I find that a lot of my, the things that I keep secret are the things that haunt me the most. Mm -hmm. So it's only when I either write them down or get them out of my system and look at them, they Mm -hmm. start to become less um, controlling over me.
1: Absolutely, yeah. The the way that one of my counselors, phrased it once and it's always stayed with me and it's phrasing that i've used with with um with clients myself now as a psychologist but she said it's 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 the dark recesses of your mind where the shame hides and it grows in the dark Mm -hmm. like a mold and you have to go in and you have to shine a light in every single corner of that room and you have to look at what's there and you have to accept that it's there and you have to process that it's there and you have to allow it to be a part of your story. And that's how you take the power back, that's how you take ownership over what happened for you, to you, and you then move forwards in a much more complete way as opposed to hiding from bits of yourself.
0: Yeah, no, that makes total sense. The, the only challenge that I have with this is how do we let it not become our identity? So mm. if we use it as our driving story, which makes total sense, we can inspire people with it, we can show people how we've overcome, but like, if we keep referring, you know, this happened to me, this happened mm. to me, this happened to me. How do we allow it to be part of our story, but break away from that? That's me. That's who I am. That's what drives me. Like, do Do you think about that? Like,
1: I do. I do. And there have been times when I think I have probably, you know, caught myself and thought, Do I want to keep? wearing this label do I want to keep telling people by the way this is what happened to me it's like people just like "Mm -hmm, that's really uncomfortable (laughs) um but I guess I guess for me it's, it's it's the balance of what are the other things that go on in my life you know where 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 do I get nourished in other parts of my life so that this is this is something that I'm passionate about in terms of sharing the message and letting people know that it's possible to have a different future and not always live in the past. Um, but I also balance that with, well, what's my home life like? What's my family life like? What's my friendship circle like? You know, how do how do I be just the normal Lydia that all those people have known as well as the person that says, okay, today I'm putting on my boots and I'm going out to talk about this again. Um, I think over time the the line is blurring between those two things because every, everybody in my world knows what happened to me. So it is something that I can just say, oh, I'm off to do a podcast today with Alex, um, connected with Safeline, you know, may well be talking about what my childhood was like and those sorts of things. And people just say, like, oh, okay, that sounds cool. And it's just, that's all it is. Um, as opposed to it being, right, how else can I push this and how else can I yeah drive it forward
0: because you must you must obviously dealing with uh, i'll call them clients is that the right word yes yeah yeah you must uh, come across a lot of people that get stuck in their own story Mm. or their yeah you know victim perhaps or just can't get past something in particular and they identify with something that's happened and that's who Mm. they are like where on earth just started to break this down so that people can move past it and I guess, learn from it and make their life better going forward, regardless mm. or despite of what horrible things might have happened to them.
1: Yeah, it, it's a real challenge. And, and it, I think the biggest part that I take from from my own experience is I was really motivated to not have this rule the rest of my life. I was really quite determined to say, this is going to be a horrible journey, but i just it's taken too much from me already i want something different so Mm -hmm. so that drove a lot of a lot of my counseling you know as as the client myself um i think with with my clients now and and i see clients for a range of different things i'm you know i don't do counseling via safe line you know um but i think whenever anyone comes to me stuck over anything we often look first of all at what's the story you're telling yourself and why is that so important to you because so often i think behind the story we tell ourselves about who we are or what happened to us there is often well if i say it to that way then i control it or it protects me in some way it stops me moving forward and so we you know quite often it's about having to dig into that okay what is the fear behind all of this yeah that you're not going to be safe in some way and what we tend to find is that with a lot of people it's they don't quite trust themselves i don't quite trust myself that if it goes wrong again I'll spot it earlier than i did last time if that's a new relationship or a new job or an, any new experience it's it's always ties back to my brain's locked in a pattern over something else that happened before and it might be related it might be completely unrelated But if we can spot what that pattern is, then we have the conscious choice rather than the subconscious pattern happening. We have the conscious choice to say, right, this is getting uncomfortable, but I'm actually still okay. I'm still I can still rely on myself to say I am safe in this moment.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest challenges is um, separating ourselves from that story, because when you believe it to be true, Mm Like, to, to, to move away from that and to even think that it might not be true is such a difficult thing. Because mm-hmm. in our own world and our own reality that we've created, that is, that is etched in stone, mm-hmm. that story. And I guess some people go through their life never really even questioning whether that, that mm-hmm. story is real, let alone doing the work that has to remove you from that story that you've mm-hmm. created. Which mm-hmm. I understand how difficult that is. It's such a hard thing to do. It must be a hard thing for a therapist as well. to. Work with someone to remove them or start Mm. to to take them away or like say make more conscious effort to question things and Mm. look at things from a different perspective and Mm. yeah realize that perhaps we've created some of the world that we live in
1: yeah absolutely you know and that's that's you know that's the way the brain works that's the way the brain is wired you know right from from you know day dot you know your your brain is wired to say okay how am i experiencing the world the environment Mm. the situations the people that i'm in um but also what am i understanding about who i am and who i need to be in order to survive you know that's that's the only part of a baby's brain that's going on is what do i need to do in order to survive do i need to cry more because that gets me more attention more food more milk all of those things and that continues to develop in terms of how our needs are met and the challenge is un- understanding and and Looking at okay, what were those experiences? Kind of how did my first thousand days when my blueprint for what I think, who I think I am, and how I think I experience the world, and therefore who I need to be to survive in this, that gets laid down in the first thousand days. So they're really, really critical. And if we look back, you know, at people's first thousand days, if they know about it, we can often find out okay, there was. In some ways, we didn't feel safe or needs weren't met in the right way or, you know, parents went off and did other things and it just made us go, oh, what's what's going on here? So it it's it's looking it's always looking at story because brains are wired for story. That's why media is so massive. That's why people listen to podcasts and watch TV shows, because we're wired for story. It's the only way we were able to communicate before paper and other things like that was the elders told a story of what life's like and where you go and where you don't go. So our brains are just wired for it all the time. So of course we tell ourselves stories about who we think other people are or how we think they live our lives or what we think they think about us or who we think we are in the world. It's taking charge of that narrative and saying, actually, if some of that story isn't working for me anymore, if it's holding me back, I have the autonomy to say I could change that story. It doesn't mean I'm rewriting who I am, but ultimately the goal should be I'm trying to get back to my more authentic self, the person that I came into this world to be, but then the world around me and the people around me shaped me in a way that made me go, it's not really safe if I'm like that all the time. So I'll dial down that part of myself in order to survive and then I keep dialing it down. And then as I get older, I feel a bit like, I just don't feel very comfortable. I don't like this. I don't like that. Either about myself or situations, you know, a lot of social anxiety these days. And it's just understanding, Okay, well, are there parts of yourself that you're yet to embrace that you had to change for reasons?
0: Surely the older you become, if that story has been with you, right? So if you're 15 Mm -hmm. and you Mm -hmm. suddenly start to become aware that, well, maybe, you know, maybe this story is something I can change. Maybe you've got a good shot if you're like 45 right and you've been Mm -hmm. telling yourself the same bullshit for 45 years like without being cynical like what are the hopes of you Mm. moving away from that because we all know people or or we've all maybe this is ourselves where we're just so stuck that we Mm -hmm. don't feel like there's anything we can do to get out of that and some people are probably right Mm. so the footprint years that they've experienced they might have set them on a path that they just have never challenged Mm obviously it does become harder the older you get, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Is there a point like, where you go past the point of return?
1: Um, from a scientific point of view, no there isn't because your brain has neuroplasticity throughout your entire life, so you can learn throughout your whole life.
0: So that can be shaped and changed? That can
1: absolutely be stage. shaped, yeah, 100% it can. Um, it comes back to fear is the biggest thing, which is people say, if I start to change this now how much of my life is going to unravel as I really figure out who I am and actually it feels again safer to stay locked in this pattern even if it's not healthy than it does to change it because what if that means I look at my partner of several years or family members and go actually you've never been nice to me I don't want to have contact with you anymore or It brings up a lot of grief about the way people that aren't with us anymore have treated us or it looks at friendships and and work and all sorts of the different aspects of our life that are affected by our story and people go that's too scary to change all of that because what if I walk away from everything I know and it's like there might be happiness the other side of that there isn't if you stay in what you're doing
0: no it feels
1: it feels safe because change yeah
0: predictable yeah so misery is quite predictable Mm mm-hmm but it's also quite reassuring.
1: It's easy to control misery.
0: Uh, for sure, yeah. Mm. And I was speaking to Gary before, before you were in, uh, in he was in, on the um, podcast, he's, he's got MS, he's a fantastic inspirational guy. And we were saying that we find like there's this, there's middle ground where people won't change if things are okay. Mm-hmm. So even if they're unhappy, but they're okay, they won't change. Like, I know this from my own experience. Things either have to, like, have to become so bad, Mm. so painful that you can no longer tolerate that pain mm. but if things are just bad I'm not moving I'm mm-hmm. not moving for anyone because it's safe it's predictable and I- I'm okay I'm not happy mm. but I'm okay and it's well, like I've
1: got control I have the illusion of control yeah
0: isn't everything a kind of an illusion though mm-hmm. so these stories that we're talking about isn't it our job just to create one that gets us through life enjoying it as much as possible even if it is an illusion
1: yeah, it it is. Um I think where I always start with people is is let's have a look at your values. What are the things if you had to choose sort of between three and six words that would say these are the ways that I want to conduct myself in the world. Um these are the ways that I want that would challenge me. You know, that in different situations it's going to be very hard to show this characteristic or or this way of being. Um, Sometimes it'd be very hard to show that to myself. Um, I think if you start with understanding what your values are as a person it has an enormous influence at rippling through your life where you end up making life changes that are just much more harmonious with who you are and it feels a lot less scary than saying that person's really toxic to you, you probably need to take them out of your life. It's well let's have a look at your values and then say, okay, so where do you see those values shared with other people in your life?
0: Yeah, we've done a lot of work on values inside the group that I'm I'm in, that I coach. It's Mm. really important to us. Mm. You'll find a lot of people's values are similar because the way I see values is if, you know, because a lot of guys will say, well, I don't know what they are, you know, I'm Mm. not sure, which we we do when we do some, you know, when we do dig in and we bury, Mm. like, you know what's important. The way I view it is, again, maybe cynical, maybe not, but like if you were to rip something away from me what would be important then mm-hmm. so i know that one of my biggest values is my mental and physical health mm-hmm. because without that like nothing else really matters because mm-hmm. I've, it's been taken from me mm-hmm. so i know that that's important so now i value it because mm. yeah i've experienced life without it uh, i value family because again if i woke up tomorrow my mom and dad weren't here i'd be devastated mm. so i think our values are sometimes more clear than what we mm. like to make out like yeah we can do drills and stuff on them all day and i don't know how you help someone discover their values but they're quite apparent when you mm. slow down turn mm. the volume down on things and and have a look at what is important i yeah. think we just get lost and l- like the world's quite noisy uh-huh. so like i think instagram is important it's fucking not mm. it's really not it's crazy yeah so it's like is that one way to discover your values is to turn the noise down on things and just pay attention
1: so the way that i look at values is is perhaps slight slightly different perhaps um one layer down from that so so for example um well my my four values are love trust honesty and freedom so they're not about don't get me wrong my mental and physical health is really really important to me you know i've have had battles certainly with my mental health and i know that being physically healthy Mm. massively impacts my mental health in a positive way for me it doesn't for everyone but i know that it does for me um for everyone surely some people don't quite get the same their their bodies don't always respond in the same way to exercise that other people's do so so that was more um but i appreciate that being physically active in some way as opposed to sporty or fit or or those sorts of things yeah um but the reason that that love trust honesty and freedom are my four values is they are the cool ways that i want to conduct myself in the world so they are attributes that i would i will want i want to show other people i haven't always found it easy Mm -hmm. to show those um i don't always find it easy to accept them back and there are some situations where i find it very difficult to have to stay in those four values, particularly if somebody isn't being very nice. So that's where I get to with with values is, you know, trust is a massive one. It's ve- It has been in the past very hard for me to trust people given my experiences in childhood. But as an adult, to calm my inner child when I meet new people and I share my story with them it's about having to say, actually, she needs to trust me in this moment that I've got this. I'm an adult. I know what I'm doing. I know my story and I know that it's safe to share it. And she might get a bit nervous about that, not want to do it. But it's, it's about me trusting myself that I can talk about what I'm comfortable with. And I can equally move conversations around if I need to. Um, to 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 deflect from something if I didn't want to talk about it. There isn't actually anything I don't want to talk about, but, mm. um, but if I needed to, there have been times when it's felt like that for sure. Um, but it's also about me being able to trust other people and allow them into my life and to realise that I can recognise when someone's safe and I can also now recognise when somebody appears very exciting to begin with, but actually over time, is perhaps going to be, for want of a better word, slightly abusive in terms of perhaps not respecting my emotions or perhaps being a bit mentally challenging in those sorts of ways in a negative way. Um, so So trust is a massive one because it's about me having to trust other people, it's about me having to trust myself and the choices that I make and that I don't push myself too hard to keep talking about things if I think, do you know what, I need to step back for a little bit. So it's those sorts of things, and, and you know, love's another one. It's, it's, it can be very difficult in some situations to keep showing certain people love.
0: Of course, yeah.
1: And it can equally sometimes be very difficult to accept that other people really do love you um and so that's why i have things like that as my values because i want them to be ways that i conduct myself that influence how i am in all sorts of different situations at any point in time in any day that make me go i feel like i want to run away what's going on why why is that is that because there really is a red flag here or is it just a historical thing of my inner child getting very nervous right now and and i need to calm her down and say it's all right i've got this adult me is in charge right now
0: yeah i mean that's super interesting lily can i change my chair because i'm yes I'm, i love the wheelie chair One absolutely <laughs> yeah i love spilled tea everywhere so that was a good start um thank you oh, that's better that's better yeah this is fascinating to me because the trust thing is something that's tortured me so i used to think trust was about can i trust that person yes can I trust that person and I never really thought about it as a inner skill or a Mm. reflection which is kind of like what you've just said there it's like yeah can can I trust me because that's the first that's the first stage and that's that's a lifetime goal isn't it to keep working on your own self-trust and that coincides with love as well because mm-hmm. love's quite painful if you don't trust the person that you're with. Mm-hmm. But there's also a part of me that knows that you can never trust anyone 100%. No. So what do you do? So you go, right, well, the only thing I need to work on is do I trust myself and do I trust myself to get through whatever happens? Yeah. If it goes well, amazing, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm there. If it doesn't, do I trust that I can pick myself up and go again? Mm-hmm. I think that's the, the, the challenge when it comes to trust. Yeah. Internally, like when you're on your own, do you trust yourself? Mm. that kind of thing it's all hard ugly stuff
1: it is it's really brutal stuff yeah, when you it get it yeah it feels like you it. shouldn't have to go through it
0: mm. there's always resistance it's like why do you have to do this mm. and there is no answer you just have to if you mm-hmm. want to survive and get through I, I believe anyway but yeah it's it's almost frustrating that as humans we're so complicated
1: mm. it is and and we have to expect that, that other people are going to hurt us the difference <laughs> is in a relationship are they doing it intentionally or was it an accident and they did something and you have the communication skills between the two of you to say, actually, I found that really hard that you did that. And and this is why, and I can explain to you why that is a trigger for me. Sure. So I can own that myself. But are you with someone who's able to go, okay, I get that, Um, it, you know, it wasn't intentional, but I do, I do apologize because I, I can see that it has triggered you or hurt you in some way. And I will try my best not to do something the same or similar again. But there's there's that huge difference between you have to expect that there's going to be some hurt. It's It comes back again to can I trust myself though to see whether it's intentional and malicious or whether this is just that person on their journey as well. And they they fucked up there and I need to go that that wasn't your finest moment. For these reasons, for me, that's a real struggle. And can they go, actually, I can calibrate to that. I can see where you're coming from. I can't promise I won't do something like it again, but I'm really gonna try Mm. not to.
0: Yeah, and that's so difficult to do. Like when you you mentioned the word red flags, I'm like, does that mean that's a sackable offense? Or does this just something we need to address now before Mm. it gets worse? Because there's always red flags in relationships, right? Or in people, in humans, because we're so flawed, right?
1: yeah i don't know that there's always red flags i think that there is um people leaving (laughs) busy one today i know it's a busy one so yeah well what
0: what, what is a red flag like what determines whether it's just a flaw or a red flag
1: i think i think a red flag is generally whether it's intentional
0: okay so you are purposely trying to hurt me
1: yeah and that might be because of your own stuff
0: is that always is that always known by the by the not individual? always
1: no not always so it
0: might be so apparent to them that I'm intentionally hurting someone or or whatever, but for me it's just a it's a defense mm. mechanism or it's a it's a shadow or it's mm. an ugly part of me that I don't feel like I've got much control over. It's yeah. always hard knowing well what's toxic versus this person really just has some issues here because mm-hmm. then we're kind of saying well if you've got issues or, or so, I'm sorry like that's it. Mm-hmm. So it's, like it's hard to know what the line is. Mm. I guess maybe this comes back to knowing yourself really well.
1: Yeah, I think it does. And I and I think, you know, there's 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 one thing I think that is just massively underrated. Um I think it uh, which is kindness. Yeah. Does a person function from a place primarily of kindness? And that doesn't mean that sometimes they don't get in a mood or they don't disagree with you over something but it's still about how they conduct themselves in that moment which is we don't need to get personal we don't need to get vicious we don't need to be unkind we can disagree and say look i just don't like the way you're doing that or handling that or the fact that you did this other thing it's just not okay with me and i'm happy to explore why that's not okay with me but i need you to explore why you did it but generally if people are coming from a place of kindness they will be like, okay, well I don't want you to feel like that again. So I I want to look at both sides of why that happened so that we can keep evolving together and stay on this same path. But I think when people get to a point where it feels like actually you're just being being unkind, and that might be your defense mechanism. But once you've calmed down, if you can't take responsibility for the fact that you was that was your defence mechanism, then we start to look at red flags and go, we've got an issue here.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. Can you teach kindness?
1: Um I think to a lot of people you can. I think there are there are some psychological disorders where you can't, because kindness involves empathy. Yeah. And there are some people that can't empathize um they why?
0: is this is this a genetic thing or is this like you've been so fucked up when you're young like yeah you just don't have that in your it's been beaten out of you that empathetic side that most humans have yeah your, your upbringing was so mm. strenuous and so painful that you just can't relate now like what what mm. usually is the reason why people don't have empathy
1: it, it's a bit of a mix of the two to be honest so there are there are certain personality disorders that that are genetic, so so if we move from the spectrum, if we look at all human beings on a spectrum of empathy and we've got people with really, really high empathy, that actually they find life really, really difficult because they're so highly sensitive to how everybody feels and they are, you know, the uber people pleasers and they Mm. never come first themselves and that's the one extreme. The vast majority of us fit within the middle of the bell curve, as it always is, where we've got, you know, a reasonable amount of empathy perhaps more in some situations and a bit less when we're tired and other things like that. And that spectrum then moves all the way down to the point where you get zero empathy. And there are two sides of zero empathy. So it moves from losing empathy into more and more processing, which is I just see the world as I process information and I don't engage with feelings. That moves into your Asperger's side of things, which then moves further down into the more extreme lack of empathy, which is into the autism spectrum, which again is an enormous spectrum. And then at the very extreme end of it, we have no empathy at all. And there are two sides to that coin. One is extreme autism. The other side is psychopaths. Um, And they have no empathy. And that is is a born situation. That is the way that genetically their brain was composed. Um, it gets triggered and and accelerated by childhood circumstances. So what we know is that um, a huge number of the enormously successful sort of CEOs of the world and people like that would score really highly as psychopaths. Just say they're
0: psychopaths,
1: yeah. They do score really yeah, highly on the yeah. psychopath test because they don't really care about... The people that work for them but
0: they're celebrated at the same time
1: they are because they're hugely successful and we celebrate wealth and success and things like that as a a species um so so we can look at that and and we can say yes we can see how their childhoods have also emphasized and encouraged this lack of empathy within them but most people are born with no empathy because babies can't be empathetic they have Mm. to put themselves first we tend to teach empathy as they become little toddlers and children and that because we talk about please can you do that don't do that that makes you know if you go and take that toy off tommy in the playground now tommy's crying we don't want tommy you know so we teach empathy we don't necessarily realize that's what we're teaching um, but we do tend to teach it in terms of we need to think about how other people are because that's how we encourage play
0: sure yeah um
1: so it so it does get taught in a huge way but some people are more genetically engaged in it and pick up on it straight away. And they're just like, oh, my God, look at the little doggy and the little duck and all of this, and they're really in it. And there are other kids that are like, meh, not so much. Mm. But they kind of have to figure out actually to to get what I want, which is friends and, and community around me, which is what I need to keep safe. I've got to kind of learn these skills of sharing and thinking about how other people feel and those sorts of things. So so the empathy side of things is is... As i said it's just this enormous enormous sort of spectrum
0: yeah like most things i guess like that totally makes sense that everything is a spectrum right it's mm-hmm. like where we sit on it but the reason why i set up the better man was because like, i started to get to a point in my life where i was achieving things but it didn't really count for much mm-hmm. and uh, you know i could still be just as nasty even if i'd achieved good things mm. on paper financially got the car got the house. you know all the things that most people start off on that ladder don't mm-hmm. they and they set themselves these goals and then yeah i suddenly kind of realized i was like well actually like i think i'd like myself better if i was kinder or mm. if i could empathize more because again i don't know whether and you'll be able to shed some light on this i'm sure like whether it's a masculine feminine difference you know mm. do men or masculine um, you know characters find it harder to show empathy do they do they find it harder to sympathize and you know, attach or, or, or understand their emotions and how they feel. Because I hear a lot about psychopaths don't really know how they feel either. They, they're not in tune mm. with it. They don't no. really understand it. They can't explain they just, it. They just
1: don't really, uh, ex- uh, they don't really experience feelings. They just don't recognise that that was good and that was bad. Or, you know, that's why, you know, if we go to, to psychopaths as the extreme in terms of psychopaths that kill, they they quite often kill because they want to see the expression on the person's face. So they're like, "Oh right, so that's so that's what pain looks like is that's what you know that's what you mm. often find with those sorts of situations um is that's why they're doing it is they can't read they can't read emotion. If you showed them a picture book of lots of different faces and some were smiling and some were angry and like that they'd be like i don't I don't know what that person's feeling. they mm. really don't and teenagers go through a phase of that,
0: of course, this why self development's hard because you' are literally cutting yourself open and having a look at all of this." stuff mm. so it's easier probably not to 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 yeah. take a look in there because you can feel like there's so much wrong with you that needs fixing mm-hmm. that you're like i don't know where and you start to question whether you're a good person so i know just doing things like real small things like spending time with my mom and dad and just doing little things that give me evidence that I, there's a nice person inside there okay. you know you can be a nice guy because we train ourselves probably to think poorly of ourselves we remember all the shit things we remember all the bad things that we've done mm-hmm. you know we zone in on the, the ugly stuff versus diet. I, I believe every human's got potential to do something nice maybe mm-hmm. I don't know whether you agree with that um, but yeah I think it's there inside of us it's can we train it to come out can we can control it because mm-hmm. also most men like it's good for them to be slightly dangerous and physically capable and mm-hmm. fit and be aggressive when they need to be if they need to be aggressive so it's mm-hmm. like how do i control these elements of me and still be mm. centered and still be a good decent human being it's mm. it's a real head puzzle it's a it's a good yeah. game it's a life project so when we talk about goals now it's like well there you go there's a life goal just mm. try and become the best not nicest, but the, just the best man you can become That's mm. how we kind of attack it now yeah and understanding what yeah. that looks like
1: yeah, I think going back to what you said before about, you know, the, the differences between men and women in terms of empathy and that side of things. There is a difference, but we can't say that it's a biological difference, like 100 percent or anything like that. We find that more women are on the feelings empathy end of the spectrum and more men tend to fall in terms of the the normative curve, the bell curve that we have of normal distribution. We find that more males um, are more in the processing side of of empathy, so they're moving slightly away from the middle
0: yeah.
1: and towards the Asperger's and autism, not that all men have it or anything like that. And you get men and women that swap over in, in either one. Of course, yeah. What what we think is probably one of the biggest contributions is actually the way that we raise boys and girls differently, Yeah. which is girls are taught and they see a model at home more often than not of mum being a primary caregiver, mum thinking of everybody else, mum, you know, doing all of these different things. And boys don't see the same from the male role model in the home. I'm not saying this is across the board, because obviously families are very differently blended these days and and there are different family setups. Um, But it's a lot of it is a cultural thing in terms of how we are raising boys and girls differently you know if you have um if you have a boy who's quite assertive and those sorts of things everyone goes he's going to be a good leader isn't he you know he'd be he could captain the football team and he'll go on to do other things if you get a girl that's more assertive she tends to be called bossy it isn't it hasn't historically been encouraged in the same kind of way so we have to look at as a culture how do we raise boys and girls for one thing um, to say, actually, how does that influence um, not only, you know, how they connect with empathy, but also the role models of, you know, well, my dad and, and his friends have these sorts of jobs and my mom and her friends have these sorts of jobs or these sorts of lives and all of that sort of. So all of that stuff influences it and all of that stuff becomes the story it it feeds into the well who do i think i need to be what do i see around me and what do i start to identify with okay
0: i know, i love it i know i love talking with you <laughs> thanks so, where's the danger of going against nature though in, in what you've just said so if 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 one and two year old boys are going to run around and start destroying things which they naturally do right mm-hmm. then you know they just play differently they're Mm -hmm. more aggressive like at what point do we accept that that is biology Mm -hmm. and like you say not in all cases but in most like where do we like lay down the 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 structures and say well that's okay Mm -hmm. because you know you're 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 a boy you're you're masculine you have these certain traits in you that might not Mm -hmm. be present in girls and we need to learn how to channel it versus like how much of it is culture versus biology
1: so from a cultural point of view, I guess the, the predominant, sorry, from a biology point of view, the predominant thing that we're looking at is is the hormonal differences. Yeah. So the fact that boys have obviously a much higher level of testosterone than girls do, and we know that testosterone is, we know that it it, it peaks in boys between sort of five and seven, okay. because their level of testosterone versus their body mass right. is quite disproportionate at that age. So yeah. that's why we get quite a lot of, I'm just really annoyed now, mom. And uh, and we don't see the same thing in girls at that sort of age yeah. because they don't have testosterone in anywhere close to the same levels at all. Mm. So we know that the influence that testosterone has. What, what we would then want to look at is how do we actually parent in those moments how do we parent a boy who is full of rage and anger and energy and it's all balled up how do we explain to him and say that's okay you can you can feel like that but it's the difference between how you behave during that so teaching children that they get a choice about how they behave and also helping them identify how they feel in the moment you know so if you see a young boy and he's getting really it's like I can see that you're You're getting angry. I wonder what the anger's about. Well, they haven't done this. That's I understand that. That's really frustrating, isn't it? That is. So what's a safe way that we can let that energy out because we can't go over and hit them or grab it or shout and do all those other things. Because what we're trying to teach again is the kindness. So it's, it's taking responsibility for our own emotions. And if we teach that as parents,
0: uh, mother or father
1: mother or father okay in fact to be honest whoever's in the whatever adults are in the family home they all need to be on the same page with this how about
0: this if the dad says okay son look you know this anger that you've got like you you know we're not showing it in a healthy way let's get out let's do some training together let's get Mm -hmm. physical like wouldn't that be a smart approach from a dad to do and and it'd be okay that the mom is a little bit more loving in a different way whereas the dad's a bit more like come on let's have a bit of rough and tumble let's teach mm. you how to be a boy but let's channel it well so that you're yeah you're using this energy that's in you in a, in a purposeful way mm. in a healthy way that's making you fitter stronger healthier isn't that okay for the dad to take that role and the mum to be the one that's a little bit more protective and nurturing
1: Um it, it's perfectly okay for the dad to do that but to be honest you want you want both parents to be nurturing and and loving in that way because that's how we change the generation of boys growing up to understand that all of their emotions are acceptable because that's what we're really talking about is teaching kids that you have an enormous range of emotions yeah and they're all okay how you express them is the bit that we look at from a safety and a kindness point of view but your whole range of emotions is okay whereas you know the generations that are adults now, they weren't taught that all their emotions were okay. In fact, a lot of them were just like, are you going out now, right off you go and play down yeah. the street and those sorts of things. But if,
0: if mothers and fathers don't bring different qualities to the raising of a child, why would you need both parents? So like the way that a father might show love might be in that, like I'm gonna teach you how to control the physical. Mm-hmm. This is where I think like that that's what's missing. So, like, and this is the problem. I think there's so many immature men out there that they don't know how to behave themselves, so they mm. can't pass that on to their children. Mm. Which makes sense. It's generational, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So when I look at my dad, my dad's a great man, but there's things he wasn't taught mm. as, as, a, as a young guy or a dad. So he, he can't teach me something he doesn't know. Yeah. so that makes sense? So it's just like yeah. it's passed down. But I'm wondering whether we'll move, because the statistics aren't getting any better, like, in terms of, like, male suicide, even mm. female suicide now. So some things... I feel like we're progressing in terms of going where people want us to go in society and culture. We're more open. We talk more. Things are evening out between men and women a little bit. And, but the statistics for some reason aren't going where mm. we thought they would go. Things are getting worse.
1: Mm. I mean, we're, what we're talking about here is emotional intelligence. Yeah. And, and the adult generations that are, you know, that are sort of you know 30 and above right now on the whole, don't have great emotional intelligence because they were never taught it, it was never discussed with them. So, and then the people sort of below that, and I think particularly, you know, the generation that are perhaps teenagers right now, they have a greater level of emotional intelligence but they have the hindrance and and the test and the challenge that is modern technology, mm. which allows them to look up every single thing they think they've got. It allows them to navel gaze for hours because they're just sat in their bedrooms on their technology, because they're not out about meeting their mates, because they don't have to leave the yeah. house anymore to catch up with their mates. Um, and so we have to look then at the role that technology is is playing in terms of people being able to disengage even as adults where perhaps they don't have the emotional intelligence to talk about how they're really feeling um and and to understand that that's OK. You know, again, it comes back to you're allowed to have all of these different feelings. It's how much you buy into them. It's how much you go. Yet yeah, that's 100 that's, percent. That's it. That's the only way I'm ever going to feel forever. No one's ever had one feeling for their whole life. No one's been happy their whole life and no one's been sad or suicidal their whole life. They are feelings are momentary. You know, they, they pass through us. They are visitors. And it's about starting to understand that. It's not denying that you have a feeling, but it's also not completely buying into it and allowing it to influence absolutely everything. It's understanding that this is really, really uncomfortable right now, and I do not like feeling this way. But I also have to understand that it will pass. It might not pass immediately, but it will pass.
0: And what you're saying, it's the kind of information that could honestly change somebody's entire experience of life. So like what you're saying is the kind of stuff I would have loved to have heard when I was at school. Mm. Just knowing that is like a relief of like, oh, I don't have to be owned by my emotions. Mm. It's a very, again, I think it's a very male dominant thing. Like if we're angry, you'll fucking know. Yeah. And that's the only only thing we can do. Like we want to show you that we're angry and we will behave like children, whether it's at 15 or at 25 or at 45. Mm -hmm. And just having that education at school would have been so helpful. look lads like you know when you get angry sometimes there is a choice you know you can detach Mm. we didn't ever speak about this and our dads didn't know this stuff no they didn't teach us so we're like you know the the guys that i'm with now they're around my age we're we're trying to learn how to do this now Mm. and it's hard because we're so well trained in being emotional, you, you know, we always think it's women that are more emotional than men. I'm no. not sure.
1: No, I don't think it is. I think I think women are generally expected to have a broader spectrum of emotions and that's more acceptable. So therefore, and, and, and because women on the whole tend to have relationships that allow them to talk stuff through.
0: They're more, I think women are more sensible and in tune with how they feel. Mm-hmm. Like they seem to have like this superpower that we probably wish we had really. That they yeah they can rationalise things, but they can they can just make smarter decisions. Like not always, because again we all get caught by emotions. Mm. But the, like, especially when it's anger and jealousy, it just seems to hit men a little bit harder, and they don't know what to do with it, mm. so they fight and they do silly things. and they drink Yeah, and...
1: because a lot of people don't like feeling, don't like having an uncomfortable feeling. No. So it's well, so how, how do how do I how do I move out of this? This is horrible. I don't want to have this anymore. As opposed to sitting down and going, this is not pleasant. But the feeling, no one ever died of having a feeling. They died because of what they did. Because they allowed that feeling to be everything. And they bought into that feeling totally. But nobody ever died from feeling jealous. Nobody ever died from feeling sad or from grief. You know, it doesn't, it it doesn't, that isn't the thing that kills you. It's the what you do as a a consequence of having that feeling to try and stop it as opposed to just go in. This is uncomfortable, but I'm gonna to have to sit with this for a while and well, I let made it pass.
0: This note from your website, which I thought was fantastic and it's something I knew, but you know when you, re- you rehear something that you needed to hear and I was mm. like, It's you, you spoke about how thoughts come first, then they turn into feelings, then they turn into emotions, then actions, and then all of a sudden we've got these set of behaviours. I kinda of sat and contemplated on that and I thought, Yeah, like we can think our way without anything happening into mm. anger. frustration so you're right like that that one feeling of jealousy isn't going to kill you but like sometimes like you can play it over and over and all of a sudden it's just this little seed and then it's this big monster that's took over Mm. your whole body and then you're acting like a man possessed Mm. that's the only way i can describe it like Mm. you are jealous it becomes you that term becomes you yeah absolutely yeah it's not obviously we know this but in the moment yeah Mm. there's no seeing out of it in the moment it's like it's too late you've got to catch it early Mm. and i thought that was a fantastic way of thinking about it Mm. because we sit there and we think some fucking horrible stuff sometimes yeah instead of uh, it's quite appetizing though it's quite juicy it feels good Mm. to think about anger and fighting because it it gets something going in on your body Mm. it does and then you can let that play out before you know it you're sitting there thinking all sorts of unhelpful unnecessary thoughts that aren't making Mm. you or uh your life any better but you're still having the physiological response
1: mm. but it's also about that that being a learned pattern for a person sure. so so that feeling of anger could be really really comfortable to somebody because it's familiar and and that familiarity as i said earlier on the brain is a pattern recognizer it is just looking for what has happened before and how do I replicate that again? Because whilst your brain is incredibly complex, it is also a little bit lazy. It doesn't want to have to start every day anew and look outside and go, there's something dark and, you know, there's something green that's low down over there, I wonder what that is. It wants to look out and go, yep, that's grass, I know what that is. So I'm looking for patterns all of the time. Um, If some of my early patterns are that anger is a very familiar feeling to me, Even if it's not healthy, it's something that my brain will keep trying to get me to go back to, because there is a comfort in familiarity. It would be harder for me to say, that's, I am starting to feel really angry. What if I just sit with that for a moment? And again, it comes back to sitting with that really uncomfortable feeling of I can feel this physically and it's like, yeah, but I can also calm my body back down again, because this just came out of a thought. It didn't necessarily come out of reality. And if it did come out of reality, okay. That tells me a lot about what you, the other person, is doing that is making me feel like this and how I process information.
0: So I asked Lydia, I think like um anger can especially when you're young, can get you what you want. Yeah. So if I you know, if I have a tantrum and I get what I want, I'm like, cool. Mm-hmm. i'll use that again you know yeah it works and, and it works in adult pattern. relationships too it does if i go moody and i'm you know i'm, I'm like you know i start to get attention like, oh, this works mm-hmm. so it's kind of being reinforced like mm-hmm. not through anyone's fault but my own but i'm kind of getting what i want from mm-hmm. these unhelpful emotions sometimes so mm-hmm. yeah like you say your, bra- your brain kind of recognizes that and go oh, okay We'll do that next time as well.
1: Yeah. And that's you know, that's again, that's the story, isn't it? That's yeah. that's what we buy into. The the self development work is the recognising our own patterns and saying, actually, if I continue with that pattern, is that productive for me or is it actually whilst it was once upon a time productive for me, it is now unproductive. And I need to look to change that because it is limiting where I want my life to go because I keep having this anger response or this detachment response this avoidance response and that brings us then into people's attachment styles yeah in terms of how they relate to people in relationships
0: yeah makes total sense so it sounds like we're we're both on the same page that we probably think we need better parenting out there as well and again i know that might upset or offend people Mm -hmm. and again i don't see that as an attack i just see it as a skill like we should all want to become better parents and better people and like the way i see it i don't have children but i like to think that through all the work I'm doing on myself, I'll be able to recognise some of the things we're talking about now Mm -hmm. in myself first, and then be able to teach my son or daughter how to Mm -hmm. handle those kind of situations better.
1: Yeah, and I agree with you. That's exactly my journey is I didn't become a parent until I was in my late thirties because I knew I had to do the work on myself first because I I wasn't going to let the stuff of my history influence what I did going forwards. So I had to work on myself to be able to say, right, now I can be present for another human being.
0: Do you ever feel ready, though, to be a parent?
1: Yeah, I did. Did you? I did, yeah. So I feel
0: like I'd be waiting until, like, it was my end. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think I'd... I think a child would accelerate my growth and responsibility.
1: It'll challenge you in ways, because what you have to remember, though, is that children, unwittingly, subconsciously, they learn all of their parents' triggers. Sure. So they know there is no one on this earth who will trigger you more than your own child. So if you haven't done the work on recognising what your triggers are and how to safely and healthily regulate yourself all the time that you are with your kid, regardless of what they throw at you, that's when you get the arguments between parents and kids. Yeah, and it's and hard conflict.
0: because I guess your kids can teach you a lot about yourself, but you don't necessarily want to use their upbringing as your chance to learn what triggers you all the time. Mm-hmm. So it's it's difficult. Like I'm not a parent, like I've said, but I can imagine it's it's a tough old ride, and mm. you've got to do this all whilst being sleep deprived. Mm-hmm. So you you've got to be trying to be at your best self. You know, your most patient, empathetic,
1: mm.
0: responsible self, whilst yeah, oh, two hours sleep and I've got to go to work. It's... Yeah,
1: but but also I mean it's it's not just the sleep, sleep deprived years, it's it's you know when they're when they're teenagers. I mean that's a whole other ball game. I've got two secondary school girls at home. Okay. And that's a whole other ball game in terms of they're trying to figure themselves out and they're trying to figure out their social groups because the teenage brain goes through the second biggest development ever from like birth years. The first thousand days is the biggest brain development. The next big one is the teenage years. They lose the ability to have empathy. They lose the ability to read facial expressions, (laughs) to hear tone of voice. Everything becomes about them again. You know, it's a very narcissistic age um, because they're trying to separate. Biologically, they're trying to separate from family. Because the, the biology of a teenager is that obviously they're becoming more sexually aware and those sorts of things. So they have to differentiate between family and people outside of family so that they can go on to find future partners and all of those sorts of things. So there's a huge biological draw for teenagers to have to spend time with their friends because that's their tribe and to disassociate with their family and be like oh you guys are so lame i hate you god dad why did you chew so loud that's horrible all of those sorts of things happen but actually they are really really important biological markers to cause that divide so that they go off into the world and their sexual awareness is outside of the family as opposed to in
0: yeah you're so right I gave my mom and dad way more shit when I was a teenager way more stuff to worry about like mm-hmm. crazy nights aren't huh? like, not coming back and mm-hmm. yeah, the attack like major like yeah wouldn't speak for years and girls would come on the scene and all sorts of reasons for them to stress yeah, yeah. my mom used to wake up until I was home from town before 4 a.m. 5 a.m. and I'd pop into my bed collapse and she'd pop up to check out as soon as you know I was home she'd be mm-hmm. able to sleep and that's the kind mm. of worry and stress that I guess parents go through. So with your clientele then, like what's the, what, like, what's the kind of, um, like do you predominantly work with women or with men or is it an even balance? Like who, who are you working with and what common issues or problems are you finding that are apparent throughout, throughout the course?
1: Um, it, it's always been a 50-50 split, which has always been interesting because it isn't how I positioned it initially. How, how was it um, initially? So initially it was positioned as as uh, for women. Okay. Um, and yet I've always had a 50-50 split. So yeah. I, after a couple of years, I changed the website to make it a lot yeah. more neutral because I was like, that's nuts. Nice. Yeah. That doesn't need to be like that now. Yeah. Um,
0: it's kind of cool though as well because yeah. I, I guess you get to see it from both sides, as they say, right?
1: Yeah? yeah, absolutely. I think... I think it's interesting there's not I wouldn't say that there's a massive difference between the work I do with any male clients or any female clients I think people generally come to me um, when they're feeling stuck when they are not feeling good about themselves I think one of the biggest by far and away the biggest commonalities I have is the underlying narrative of on some level I'm not good enough.
0: Yeah, and that's that. yeah. that's
1: not gender specific at all no i understand yeah um so that's probably you know predominantly a lot of my work i mean i work with couples as well i work with them in terms of their relationship and then sometimes we do one-to-one work if one partner needs to sort of go actually i probably need to take this out of the relationship and just work on this and then come back into the the joint couples sort of therapy sessions um and then interestingly and i guess sort of not surprisingly is over lockdown it's it's there's become more and more um children all right yeah so generally around secondary school age
0: yeah i think they were the worrying stats that i was doing a bit research on yeah especially Mm. in young girls like a lot of uh, self-harm and suicide like say scarily catching up a lot of loneliness as well they were talking about Mm. the women are experiencing because like yeah. men predominantly have been the ones that, you know statistically that have said that they're most lonely and obviously suicide rates are higher but the gap is closing but not because the men's numbers are improving it's because the the women's numbers are going up mm. which is scary I can I mean I can see like on social media how it can have such a negative impact on anyone's brain let alone the teenagers because this fascinates me because as, as adults we try and protect our teenagers brains don't we we want to mm almost have an influence and a say what they're exposed to and what they're not. But it seems like once we get to our adult age, we stop caring as much about what we expose ourselves to. Mm -hmm. So like, I wouldn't want my teenage daughter or son watching the news, reading the newspapers all day, eating crap food, drinking loads of booze. I wouldn't want that for my child just because Mm -hmm. I know better. I know it's not good for you. Yet, like I say, as an adult, it's like that doesn't matter anymore. We'll expose Mm -hmm. ourselves to all these outside influences and external voices that, make our life no better yeah and it's yeah there's there's one thing but yeah the data is quite frightening because it's a real sad situation when we think there's so many unhappy young people out there
1: yeah and I think I think it is it's very worrying and it's it's definitely there's definitely a part of it that is this is the technology generation they've just grown up with technology their whole lives and and what we have to remember is that our brains in terms of our Um, sort of generation our species development our brains are actually nowhere near able to keep up with the technology that we have you know we process stuff in a in a much different way to to how technology gives it to us and of course what we're seeing is things like attention spans are shortening because of you know how short tiktok videos are and 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 other things like that so you know so it's getting harder you know sometimes for people to sit down and watch a program because it's like. Mm. right it's been on for 10 minutes like this really big commitment and it's like is it um but i think um the other side of it is is looking at obviously the lockdowns haven't helped the last couple of years um in terms of isolating teens at a time when they need to be out of the family they need to be with their friends they need to be socializing they need to be figuring out who they are and finding their tribe and to then say sorry guys you guys have all got to stay in for two years and be with your families that you just don't really want to have to connect with on a biological level anymore is enormously challenging um and i think as we sort of touched on before i think the ease of technology to not actually physically meet up with friends even now we're out of lockdown the The habit is sort of formed of, well, we just chat online all night, and it's like, but it's just not the same as mm. being physically with your mates and having a laugh and stuff happening that way. And and also the physical activity side of things as well.
0: Yeah, no, You know, absolutely. of not
1: just getting out there and going for a walk. And you know, I was a teenager, we used to just walk around the streets all the time because there wasn't a park nearby. And we just used to roam around the streets every evening for about two hours. Um, And I'm not saying that that was a great thing either. We didn't get into any trouble or anything, but we were out the house, though. We were all together. You're having a bit more of an easy laugh and a joke. The body language is all a part of it. You're out of a room. So the way your brain processes information when you're outside of a room is phenomenally different to when you're inside a room. The, The limits with which being in a room has on your brain's ability to kind of think big picture whereas as soon as you step outside it's like right actually I feel like there's a lot more possible because my eyes my brain is getting information from a much bigger area right now and so it feels like it can think differently and we've got teenagers sitting in their bedrooms on their tech all the time and it's like this isn't this isn't going to be good for your brain development mm. but going back to your point about what we consume in our brains i completely agree with you i part of my part of my working on myself a good few years ago probably about 10 years ago now was realizing that actually some of the media I consumed just didn't make me feel good when I'd stopped using it my brain got into the habit of oh I wonder what's going on I'll just check this website or uh, this app and those sorts of things and then I just realized that I'd come off it and be like I don't actually feel very good not necessarily about myself I just don't I don't feel happy i don't feel motivated things like that. so i i had to really consciously think about who do i want to follow online who you know how often do i want to use media and things like that and understand that there are times when it might be that i'm between clients and i just think do you know what i'm just going to go on tiktok for 10 minutes because i just need chewing gum for the brain for a little bit to just get me out of this so that i'm ready for the next person that walks through the door i have no problem with doing that because i know that it's my choice and i know why i'm doing it but to sit in a bedroom and think i've probably got six hours ahead of me because i've had my dinner and i'm not going to go to sleep for hours because i'm a teenager and i'm just going to spend that trawling six hours just watching you know one two three minute videos just the next one the next one it's just like that's not that's not going to be good for your self-esteem your self-worth for how your brain's processing information so i i do agree with you that As much as we we talk to kids about you should eat, you know, eat better, eat your vegetables, and all of those things. There is also a conversation to be had around just think about the media you're consuming and whether it really makes you feel better after you've consumed it, or is it just wasting time?
0: Yeah, because it's all the same thing, right? If we're consuming something, it has a physiological effect, whether Mm. it's food, drink, information, reading, right, whatever. You know, we call it the palate. So we're Something we're really careful on is, yeah, what are we taking in? But I think as adults, like, it's hard enough for us to monitor our own palate. Mm-hmm. Like, imagine being, like, 12 or 13. Like, we know as adults what a challenge not getting wrapped up in social media is. Mm. It's hard. Like, I know all the dangers, but it's still hard. Mm. So, like, being 12 or 13, wow, like, like that's, that's really difficult. Mm. The only thing that I can think of, we have to lead the line well. So, if you're a parent who's saying don't be on your phone all day and you can't get through dinner as an adult without checking your email, like you're a fucking hypocrite. Oh, absolutely. You've got yeah. to lead by example. Yeah, you have food. got to. Yeah, yeah. You can't tell your child to eat well if you're sitting on the couch slobbing eating crisps. Mm. You just can't. Mm. Like, my mom and dad, bless them, like, they smoked when we were young, so we smoked. But they had no right then to tell us not to smoke. Yeah. Well, they did because they loved us and they knew the dangers, but they smoked. Yeah. We're not going to listen. Yeah. So it all, it all comes back to the self, your own actions. Mm. It's the only way you can teach and lead, isn't it?
1: It is, absolutely. The difference is obviously that as adults, we have to learn that self-regulation. And as teenagers, they don't have that yet. So sometimes we have to do self-regulation for them. Of and sometimes we just have to have the conversation about, you know, this is an opportunity for you to learn your own self-regulation sure. now.
0: Yeah, but if, yeah. I guess my point is that if you were to sit me down as a parent and want to talk to me about nutrition because you knew it was good for me so you wanted to help me self-regulate but you were doing it whilst eating a packet of Doritos 100% yeah, I think that's yeah where we've got to look at our own mm. and I think people have blinkers on this sometimes they don't see it happening mm. they don't see their behaviours being passed down mm. literally handed over to their children mm. it's like come on like this is the way we change the world isn't it everyone has a look at themselves and says what can i do Mm. what can i do to make myself better and that's that's the only way i can see out of this kind of mess that i think we've gotten ourselves into Mm. the only way
1: yeah i think it is and i think also you know when we talk about like the loneliness side of things i think another way that that parents need to lead by example is to show an active lifestyle
0: yes yeah, you know, to show
1: that they get up and they go for a run in the morning yeah. or that they go to the gym or or it, they go to an evening class or something like that or that they continue to learn. They go, you know, they go to a different sort of, not an exercise evening class, but they go yeah. to, I don't know, I'm going to learn a foreign language or I'm going to, you know, to, to lead by example in those sorts of ways so that that, that the children realise that this isn't, I think there's a huge sort of myth about, and I remember buying into it myself when I was younger, which is, at a certain point I become an adult and I I think thinking back now I had somehow thought that I then became a a different person like the final version of me like there was this well I'm an adult now so the change is done kind of thing and it's like of course it isn't because you take hopefully you take your inner child with you throughout your whole life Um, but what parents can do as well in supporting is to show themselves being social yeah, and I think I think you know there, there's a couple of things there. In fact, that reminds me of something from we were talking about earlier. I think parents having a good circle of friends and showing how they navigate that, how they communicate, how they socialise, I think that's really, really important to children. You know, having grown up with parents who didn't have friends, and and still don't necessarily overly socialise, um, it's interesting that my brother and I both have really, really concrete, firm friendships that we've had for years and years. And, and new people have come along the way, but friends is really, really important to both of us. And I like the fact that that our two girls are are getting to see that and getting to experience that and getting to see what healthy and what long-term historical kind of friendships look like and the benefits of them. Because yeah. one day, you know, the people that are my friends, will be the closest thing I have to family because they're the people that will have all my history. They're the people that will talk about it. Um, so I think there's a lot of things like that um, where we need to look as 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 parents and as adults, as, as we said before, to the example that we are setting.
0: Definitely, I know just my community has changed my life more than anything. I think just putting myself around People who want to be decent and good and how mm. even have conversations like this with you, uh, seriously, I, I cannot under uh, under kind of like sell the the importance of how much they change my life. Mm. Just learning off people, listening, learning how to listen as well—it's a skill. Mm. And hearing new views, new concepts, being challenged, realizing there's 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 other things to pursue in life that are not material, mm. such as knowledge and truth, and you know it's, it it does change. I'm a big believer in the basics of like you've got to be really careful what you feed yourself Mm. and that's not food I'm talking information conversation like you say the friends that you're with they they play such a role Mm. such a role and we need to I think the first thing we need to do is understand the importance of that yeah I'm a different person if I'm around bad people after a while it's Mm -hmm. it's gonna it's gonna get me it does yeah it will
1: influence absolutely and it's 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 an interesting one because I think it leads on to then how do we do conflict because I think that's something that a lot, a lot, lot of people really struggle with, is how do I do conflict? And I think, again, that stems from childhood. Mm. Because the majority of children, they may or may not see their parents argue. They virtually never see how their parents resolve an argument. Because parents just don't resolve arguments in front of kids They might have a row. They might have a disagreement. They might have an argument. And it'll be like, right, well, let's just leave it for now. Let's go off and do this thing that we've got to do. And then at some point, mum and dad are okay again. And it never happens in front of the kids. (laughs) The parents don't come together and go, do you know what? My bad, that wasn't okay. That was me. I accept that. You know, apologies or whatever. And the other person go, actually, I did this as well. So that's fine. Kids don't get taught how to deal with conflict by being um, by having a healthy example set for them, and that 's why so many people are really poor at conflict
0: you know what i mean? 've never thought about that mm. that 's so fucking true. it really is. It is like you get taught how to argue, but yeah, even just saying that i 'm like light bulb this is why I love podcasting because i 'm like there 's always like nuggets of gold that go away with me, and I'm just think yeah we 've never been taught how to deal with conflict resolution like mm-hmm. never never taught how to end an argument, wow, yeah or how to solve something, yeah. Because usually it's who shouts the loudest, or it's Mm. about me proving you wrong.
1: Or who walks off, or all of those things. It's it's whoever's going to give in first. It's generally (laughs) what most people think is, is how you resolve conflict.
0: Because you call yourself the confidence coach, but yeah. you do a lot with emotional, is it resilience, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely, yeah. Sort of communication, yeah. confidence, resilience. Yeah. yeah, and all
0: these things, I can clearly see how everything merges together. Yeah. So I know we're talking about conflict, and, but emotional intelligence and emotional uh, resilience, like they all merge. And even back to what you originally said, which was a lot of the clients, the underlying truth is I don't, you know. I, don't I, feel good I, enough. I don't feel good enough. All, mm. these, all these things link. So, where where do you start to like piece all of this together? So, like, confidence on its own is a separate topic to me. Like, I can mm. see a big link between confidence and resilience, mm-hmm. because for me, confidence is built off the back of wins. Like, I don't mm. know whether, and again, correct me if I'm wrong here. I don't think we can bullshit our way into believing we're confident. I mm. think you have to go and earn a little bit of. Uh, backing up your own word to Mm -hmm. gain the trust in yourself so that you've got the confidence when you say you're going to do something you believe that you might do it yeah like yeah how do you teach these things to people how do you unravel them yeah how do you even deal with someone who's not even aware of all this shit that's going on
1: um i think the place i always start is to understand what brought the person to to get in touch with me in the first place
0: which is usually pain right
1: yeah it is it's you yeah it is pain of some sort yes yeah whether that's uh a relationship pain whether that's work pain whether that's um personal pain in terms of just you know not liking who they are or feeling stuck or you know not feeling confident or having anxiety or having depression and all of those things so we always start with well what brought you to get in touch and then the way that i always lead it is i guess the first couple of sessions is the way that i describe it to clients is it's a little bit like us taking out a jigsaw puzzle and throwing all the pieces out <laughs> and, actually, and yeah. then we turn them over and we start looking for the corners and the edges and then we do the hard work of filling in the middle to understand what the picture actually is yeah,
0: i like that analogy i'm guessing the pain that they come to you with must no longer be tolerable
1: yes i think yeah i think that's fair enough doesn't mean that it's it's pain as in uh overwhelming but it's got to a point where they're just like this is not yeah Yeah. i've had enough exactly yeah perfect way to put it um and so for the first couple of sessions it it really you know we talk about what's brought them to get in touch but i don't go straight into that because we've got to go broad before we go deep so
0: these edges that you talk of what what are the edges are they like let's work out what your values are let's work out what your problems are what what are the edges
1: the edges are let's let's talk about your life so you tell me who you are, tell me who's in your life, tell me who's important, tell me anything that you think is significant from your life. You know, what's good, what's bad, what's difficult, what don't you want to go near, which I'm not going to push anyone towards until they're ready. But let's just talk about, so to so tell me who's in your life, who are the people, what are the places, you know, what have you done with your life, where is it at right now and what's what's been the whole... It's very interesting how incredibly cathartic it is for clients to sit down and tell me their life story, which is, right, so you were born, who was in the family, what happened next, and to tell me almost chronologically their life story, and most people go, oh my God. I have never done that before and yeah. it's like no why would you who who is generally going to sit down and say please tell me from birth what I do know. you remember there's
0: an element of guilt behind it so if we shut off the cameras now and you said look alex i want to help you out like let's have mm-hmm. an hour session i would be like Liddy, you don't want to hear my shit like, i don't want to pour that onto you like you got like, even if even if i was paying you and if mm-hmm. it was your job role i'd be like you, you don't want to hear this i'd almost feel sorry for you that you've got to hear all this bullshit
1: mm. but but that's my passion
0: I know, is, I know, is, I it's, it. it's, so, You know,
1: it's, it just doesn't, you know, it's absolutely fine to me. Like, <laughs> I don't I don't walk away with the weight of that. I walk away with, that's really interesting, and my brain's like, ding, 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 finding connections in places. Because it's really hard when it's your story and it's your lived experience. Sometimes it's really hard for people to see all of the connections. Some people come to me and they've got a, you know, really decent level of self-awareness and it's like, yep, yeah, I can see that this link to this and this link to that. But sometimes there are big themes that are going on and it takes somebody outside of you to go, you do realise that there was this situation here and then this, what you thought was totally unrelated because it's in a, I don't know, it was a personal situation to begin with and then there's this professional thing. You do realise the theme that adds those two things together and people are like, ah, okay, and that's the work that we do. And then we work through that stuff and it's it's then about you know talking to people and saying okay well when do you want to come back because i don't work with a you've got to come in every week and you've got to come at this time and this is your slot That's interesting i i, I it, it's not something that ever worked for me because sometimes you're ready to talk in a week and sometimes you're just not and sometimes life happens and you know people turn up and they're like i've just been so busy i don't know what to say and that's fine i can i can navigate that with you but I'd rather you turn up, feeling like, yeah, I've had enough space between sessions to come back and okay. feel like I've got something that I want to say this time.
0: The danger with that for me was that the resistance would push me away. Like if you got close to something that I felt like you were touching on that was, mm. you know, important or difficult, that might be my excuse to open the window and run out. Yeah. Whereas, like I have uh, psychotherapy every week. Okay. And some weeks' I'm, I'm ready and some weeks I'm not but I turn mm-hmm. up regardless and sometimes the ones where I'm not ready there's usually a reason mm-hmm. and we discover something in that session yeah it's a bit like the gym like those sessions that you don't want to do are usually the ones you need to fucking do yeah you know like leg day guys will always skip leg day because it's hard but actually you need to do leg day okay. so there's an element again I think this is the individual some mm-hmm. people are, if they're backed into a corner no yeah you know, but I kind of like that heat on me yeah I'd like you to say no, no no Alex you're not you're not getting out this time the door's shut mm-hmm. we're going for this but I guess you have to be careful of who you do that and when you do that
1: absolutely and and you know there's a classic thing in in um, in any form of, of talking therapy which is um, clients generally really unintentionally Will drop a huge bomb with about five minutes to go to the end of the session. Because that's the safe time to do it, which is I'm going to leave this with you and now I can leg it because we don't have to talk about it now. And then I've got a week to mull over how do I avoid that if I want to next time? Or what if he holds my feet to the flames and makes me talk about that? And it's like, okay, well, I've got a week to prep for that. So,
0: yeah, I guess the ambition is always the same is to get to the center of the issue. But I guess some people will jump in the shallow end and slowly paddle towards it. Yeah. Whereas some people might just go, no, oh, fuck that, let's, let's dive in. Yeah.
1: Let's and I was something. a dive in. As yeah. I said, you know, when I went to Safeway, I was like, let's dive in, let's, let's do this because I'm I'm sick yeah. and tired of this stuff. Let's yeah. do this. And it was hard and it was brutal at times. Um, and I thought I was going to break at times. Yeah. But it was like, I'm just not letting this go because I want out the other side of it. Yeah. Um, but there are loads and loads of people. There were people in my group therapy sessions that were just like, "I, I have to tinker around the edges of this because it's too painful." Yeah, um, and that's that's the characteristic. That's the experience, you know. And that's just about allowing people to be themselves and saying, "Look, I'm I'm here when you want me, but I'm not going to force you to come and see me." So it it requires them to have the motivation to say, I do still want to keep going with this actually. Yeah,
0: and in the line of work I do, I can relate to that totally. If I'm nagging someone, I know it's not right. You know, mm. they've got to want to do or be willing to do the, mm. the work at some point. Uh, touching on the resilience aspect, this is mm. you know, this is something I love talking about resilience because um, I've taught myself how to be more resilient over time. Um, but when we're talking about not being good enough, mm. Do you think there's a, a a space and a time where it's okay to say to someone, well, actually, you might be right, like, wh- how you're behaving right now and the way that you're turning up every day is, yeah, it's not good enough. You are you are not good enough right now. Is there a place and time for that where you can say it? Cause, because I know some therapies would well, of course, you're good enough. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> right? And mm-hmm. while there's an element of truth to that, I think... It's not what many people need to hear. It Mm. it hurts, maybe, being told, "Yeah, you're not doing good enough right now. You're not good enough right now."
1: I think it's rather than it being told. I guess what you're trained as a therapist is it's always about asking open questions. Yeah, therapists are so good at that. So it's it's it is the question of how do you think this is going what do you think You're about okay your i'm fine yeah. thank you what do you think about your effort level at the moment are you are you okay with that like have you got other stuff going on that means that this actually is your best right now
0: is that your therapy or, voice or, yeah he yeah. yeah, just turned into therapy voice, yeah. <laughs> yeah but yeah okay that makes sense so you get them to decide whether they're being mm. good enough or not yeah what, what if what if their um what what if their intuition and gut is all off and you can see that they're not like. Is a therapist's job to to just um um unveil light bulbs for the client, or can you step in and say, "Well, actually, I'm noticing something that you might not be noticing here." Yeah, hundred oh, percent. That's step certainly
1: in. that's certainly my style, yeah. anyway. Yeah, I mean, I'm not you know, I'm not a super super soft person. Yeah. You may have picked up one. So um, yeah, but you're very
0: nice. Oh, thank you. Like you're very. I, I can tell you would never like do anything out of other than good intent. Mm. And I guess this goes back to what we were just saying. everyone's different. Yeah. I love it when my therapist calls me out and says, "That's yes." Yeah. Have you thought about it like this because what you're saying might not be right. I, I need that because if I, if I can mm. take the piss, I probably will. Mm. Same in relationships, like I need someone who's going to say Alex. Mm. you're taking the piss or yeah, I need that, I need to." But I like that kind of mentorship. I consider mm. that quite loving when someone if, if someone's trying to help me. Hmm. and will give me it straight regardless of whether it hurts my feelings or not. I really respect them for it. Because it's a hard thing to do, to be honest, it to someone. Is. It is. And Suck. it's it's a
1: good sign of how much you trust your therapist. That's a really good sign that you are prepared to have someone say... I've been
0: working with them for years, that's why. Yeah
1: and that's great and that's that's yeah. the beauty of, of, of having a longer term relationship with the therapist is you can just keep picking up where you need to
0: well I don't get the whole I'm going to go to therapy for a few sessions It again it's the equivalent for me of I'm going to go to the gym a few times I don't mm. get it yeah I'm like, and
1: expect that all the results will be there and they'll yeah. stay forever yeah, yeah or
0: like I'll do six weeks I'm like no like you either want to improve or it, and you don't need to put an expiry date on it just, just keep going keep mm. doing the work like you never stop training your mind or your brain or you never stop learning more about emotions and I, I don't see why people wouldn't do that mm. like I said just like the physical like if you stop going gym you get smaller and you get you get weaker mm. so I think therapy is the same I, I, I would encourage everyone to do it. I remember having a guy called Paul Foster on here he's the Michelin star restaurant uh, owner in, in Stratford mm-hmm. and he said that he didn't even know what his issues were until he went to therapy and his mm. life is so much better now didn't know he had some issues. His, his girlfriend did, and she encouraged him. Just we try this for me. Mm. It was only until someone showed him a new way to live and you know, opened his eyes to these things. Did he realise mm. that he was unavailable a lot of the time, emotionally unavailable? Didn't have it's, empathy. Yeah. yeah. It it's, was only until someone showed him.
1: It's the four stages of of consciousness of of competency. So we start off and and forgive me, but I always use driving as an example for this. So we start off unconsciously incompetent. Yes, We do not know what we do not know until we've actually got in a car and somebody says, right, start the engine and drive. Sure. At that moment, when somebody says, start the engine and drive, you become consciously incompetent. You suddenly realize you don't know how to drive. You might've watched your parents drive, but you haven't actually ever really done it yourself. And you don't realize how many different aspects there are Mm -hmm. to driving. Um, Then as you learn to drive, you get to a point where you're ready to take your test. At that moment, you are consciously competent, which is if I think about everything that I'm doing, I am actually competent at driving, and that's the day when they go, you passed your test.
0: Sure.
1: You then fall into the category that most of us are in, which is we are now unconsciously competent. I don't think about the fact that I drive, I don't think about the mechanisms, I don't think about the fact that I have to check my mirrors, or the different things that my hands and feet are doing at different times my brain just does all that stuff for me. I am now unconsciously competent at driving. So those are the four stages that everybody goes through in in therapy. There will always be something that you are unconsciously incompetent at.
0: Sure. It right. is
1: sticking with it long enough to find out what it is, or it's trying it in the first place, like the example of Paul Foster, where he was just unconsciously incompetent. He didn't realise, he didn't know this stuff.
0: No, I get it. But I haven't had a driving lesson since I was, what, 18? So nearly 20 years ago. If you if, if you were in the car with me now, you'd be like, that. you would not pass your test driving like that. No, I wouldn't. One hand on the wheel, you know, chilling out, cruising. So it's like you get complacent. And mm-hmm. therapy is another way for me not to get complacent. Because mm-hmm. like, if pain is the driver for a lot of behavioural change, which it's always been in my case, when that pain goes, you can easily slip back. So this is why you see people who are overweight, they feel so terrible about themselves, they look in the mirror and go, I need to do something. They start to see changes, they feel good about themselves, the motivator, which was the pain, has gone. So they go right back to the start and Mm. their new motivator becomes pain. Only this time it has to get a little bit more painful than it was last time. Mm -hmm. So it's like, can we change people's values whilst they're going through that that Mm. change? But the values for me only change off the back of behaving a certain way. So... Um, how can i explain this well i will value something after a period of time when i've when i've become better at it so for example with health and fitness i value it because i I give it so much time and attention Mm -hmm. i I wouldn't value it otherwise so values are a tricky one for me where you have to invest something Mm. in them so if you want values to be love and trust like surely you have to pay some attention on that but if you don't value them at the time why would you place time and attention on them? So it's this tricky area to get going. Like You probably value it more now because you've dedicated your whole life to it.
1: Yeah. I think think there's probably a slight difference in terms of how, or to my mind anyway, in terms of how you and I talk about values. Mm. Because I think for me, if I always think about mental health and physical health, they are really important to me And they give me lots of benefits. I guess my mental health is supported firstly by my physical health, but also my mental health is supported by me living what I consider to be my values, which are these qualities of how I live as opposed to um, things around me or not not material things, but um, I can't think of the right words right now, but I guess... Mental and physical health are achievements.
0: Wouldn't that be an example of love, though? So from you working out and eating well, your statement is, I care about myself. Yeah. Therefore, because really, if you're five stone overweight and not moving, like, if we cut the shit, like, and said, well, do you respect yourself? Like, Mm. and therefore do you love yourself? Because if you loved Mm. yourself, you'd respect yourself. Yes. So that is, when we talk about values of love, it's like, that's the, that's exercise yeah that's good food in, in my it is no and yeah. I,
1: I really agree with you on that I guess to me it's that love is the thing that is beneath the physical and the mental health sure. which is that's the driver for me yes is I have to show self-love because and and one of the ways that I do that is staying physically active and I know that that benefits my mental health but it comes back to sometimes showing yourself self-love can be really really challenging Absolutely. because you don't feel you want so to me that's where it comes back to an value as opposed to an achievement which is i am achieving self-love by being physically healthy and that gives you so, the oh
0: no, I, th- I think i'm on the same page with you yeah. i think i've probably just gone the other route that's why i train yes it's a statement of self-respect my value is yeah self-respect perfect and one of yes. the ways i show that is taking care of myself and one of the ways i yeah. display taking care of myself is food and nutrition yeah. so yeah. i think we're probably saying the same kind of thing it's just gone yeah. right yeah i think I, I always i think with guys i always lead in with like the more achievement based language yes because it's more appealing it's like here's the tunnel to what you really want
1: yeah if you talk to a load of guys who have come for physical fitness about right let's talk about self-love it's going to be Imagine. like oh tumbleweed yeah. moment absolutely yeah. what i love in that is that respect is one of your values then yeah so then respect should be a challenge in terms of how do i keep showing other people respect even if i feel disrespected (laughs)
0: Oh,
1: so that's where it pushes you that if respect is one of your values is yeah i respect myself and that and i demonstrate that to myself all the time by eating well and physically training and those things but how do i continue to show other people respect and that's where the rub should come with any value that you have is there should be moments where it's really hard but that's the time that you have to rise above and go how do i show respect to someone when they're showing and respect to myself in the same moment that somebody is showing me disrespect
0: yeah that, that's great one of the issues i have with values is i think people like on certain courses are asked just to select them i'm more of the view is we know what your values are by yes. what you're doing and if you don't um, follow those values you'll fall out of alignment and there'll be a lot of pain in your life so mm. I know that when I move away from self-care and self-respect mm-hmm. I'm really miserable and sometimes mm. I have to sit back and detach like we spoke about and say why are you feeling so miserable and then you realise oh, I've been nasty to this person or I've been nasty to myself and it's gone against the values that I really yes. want in life I want to be a kind man of course I do and if I display unkindness like it, it really hits me hard now I'm, mm. I get depressed get to prayer so it's like yeah your values are i believe what you do every single day yes and that's that's where the art of discipline and, uh, and resilience comes in
1: yeah absolutely and i think i think it's it's when you're talking about that in terms of um you know ha- if i if i feel like i haven't managed the situation well yes you know because i agree with you values to me are about us embracing our authenticity who am I really? Well, my values will tell me that. They'll challenge me at times, but I, I already know what they are. I don't need to just sit down and go, right, you know, make up what your values are. I need to think internally and think actually what's really important. Like, how do I want to be treated by other people, by myself, and how do I want to treat other people? Yeah. That's where I already know what my values are. I've just never articulated them before. Yes. But if I'm coming to a place where it's it's i feel like i've been unkind to somebody that brings us back to conflict resolution which is how do i take responsibility for that how do i learn from it and how do i learn not to be triggered by that person that situation that type of event whatever again how do i why and and what can i learn from the fact that that triggered me in the first place why did it what was it about what happened that triggered me, that led me to go against my own values to be unkind? I must have felt threatened in some emotional way.
0: Can you be a part-time psychopath? So can you be like 95% of the time switched on? Unkind, empathetic, and but then there is this part of you, and I say a part because I believe that's how I break it down and visualise it, that is pure fucking off the tracks, psychopath, out of control. Because you hear the phrase, I just saw red. Mm-hmm. And you're like, that's not me, or that's not like him. Mm. But like for that moment, they just flip. Like, yeah. Can you be part-time psychopath? And what is that? And how do you control that part of you?
1: You, you can't be a part-time psychopath, because right. unfortunately that requires the either complete lack of empathy or the ability to empathise. And as I said before, psychopaths, just they just don't get empathy. They can't read feelings, can't read emotions. They don't feel guilt. They don't feel shame or anything like that. So you can't switch then between. So you can't be
0: someone who feels guilt and then doesn't feel guilt in that moment.
1: In that moment, you're not feeling guilt because there's so much shame about what you're doing. So it's it's called the shield of shame that comes up (laughs) and makes us go, I can't process what I just did. So guilt is I did the wrong thing. Shame is I am the wrong thing. Okay. So shame often comes up when there's guilt the shield of shame comes up and it's like cannot process because that means that I'm a terrible person and I've got to correct this and then that brings me back to conflict resolution but it also brings me back to how do I, how do I fit that that I just did into the story of who I've decided I am because that isn't coherent mm. with who I am so what I think we're talking about here is much more about triggers and attachment styles so in attachment styles you can either be secure or insecure so secure attachment styles is I have a really really good understanding of who I am as a person and I can connect in a really healthy uh, way with other people and if if through death or accident or something like that somebody leaves my life I will be really you know I will properly grieve for that but it will not fundamentally change who I am as a person I'm not going to have to then go oh I've got to build myself back up again and reinvent myself because that partner's left me and I've morphed into them So that's the secure attachment style, is you don't morph into your partner and they don't morph into you. Um, That's less than 50% of the population have a secure attachment style because that requires you to have two parents who both had secure attachment styles for you to be brought up with that. You can learn it as an adult. The insecure attachment style breaks down into three different areas. You can be anxious attachment style, avoidant attachment style, or ambivalent attachment style. So anxious attachment style is uh, I'm based on on a real primary level I'm afraid that you're going to leave me or something bad is going to happen so I hang on quite tight to the people that mean the most to me but I can be a little bit suffocating over that and possibly a little bit controlling with it too because I don't want you to go away. Of course. Because that would crush me and I would lose a part of myself.
0: Like, the worst thing about that one is the more that you love someone, the worse that control can become. Yes. Because you're so terrified.
1: The avoidant attachment style is comes from the exact same place, which is I'm terrified that you're going to leave me, but actually therefore I kind of always just keep one foot or a toe out of the door. So that when the inevitable day comes, because it's going to happen, that you leave me, I can justify it and say, well, I wasn't that attached anyway. It does really hurt, but I'm going to try and style it out a little bit more. What we know is that anxious and avoidant attachment styles are like magnets to each other. They are super, super toxic for each other. Because what tends to happen in in a romantic, intimate relationship scenario is the avoidant attachment style comes along, sees the anxious attachment style and whisks them off their feet. Oh my God, and it's all fairy tale. it's movie love. And then what happens is the avoidant person puts the anxious attachment style on a pedestal. They are the most perfect person I have ever met. The anxious person then being a human being shows some form of fallibility and it could be anything, it could be they don't load the dishwasher in the right way, it could be big, it could be small, it's generally pretty insignificant, it could just be we were having a chat about ex-partners one day, and the anxious person said they've had, I don't know, 15 different lovers in their life, and the avoidant person just goes, well, that's too many in my book, I've just decided that doesn't make me feel good. And that's the thing, they don't verbalise it, they just start to withdraw at that moment. And so the anxious person, the anxious attachment style, begins to feel the withdrawal of the avoidant. And so they cling on even tighter, because they've been made to feel wonderful. I mean, they've been up on this pedestal, this is movie love, this is the real deal this time. This one's gonna be different to all the others. And they feel the avoidant start to move away, so they grab on even tighter. And that makes the avoidant person go, oh God, this is even worse, and step away more. And what ends up is a cat and mouse situation where you have the anxious person grabbing on more and more and the avoidant person withdrawing more and more and unfortunately that is why the vast majority of marriages end in divorce because they are anxious and avoidant attachment style marriages the third and final one is ambivalent attachment style so ambivalent attachment style is a mixture of the two it is the push pull so ambivalent attachment styles generally tend to come from traumatic childhoods where children's needs just haven't been consistently met that's not to say that there's been abuse or anything like that it's just this inconsistency of need being met and they just feel very much like i don't know whether you're safe or not So I grab onto you in a really anxious way and go, oh my God, you're going to be my everything. And then they go, oh my God, I feel totally overwhelmed by what I've done. I need to push you away now. And then go, oh God, you're leaving. No, 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 I'll change, I'll change, come back again. And then it's like, oh no, I can't do this. It's too hard, right, you need to go. No, no, don't go. And so that's the ambivalent attachment style is the push pull, you're smiling.
0: I'm smiling, yes. I'm sorry, I feel like you're talking to me. Yeah. Well one of the things that makes I think this podcast so relatable is I certainly don't hit sit here and pretend I've got all my shit figured out. And I just it's just fascinating hearing you break it down like that. Mm-hmm. It's like it's almost like an equation of like Yeah, this yeah, it makes sense. Good. And that's why I
1: do this sort of therapy. Yeah, it's I'm cool very broadly because to me it's never been there's never been one therapy where I said right, if I'm trained in, I don't know, CBT or yeah. psychodynamic therapy, that's going to fit everyone who walks through the door. Because it just, it just, to me, that's never felt complete. It's, it's the more I know about lots and lots of different theories, the more I can be client-focused and I can say, well, you tell me about you, and I'll bring in all sorts of different theories that will help you create a framework of going, okay, I think I'm starting to understand myself better now. I understand why I do this. I understand why I'm not doing that. you know, it's all starting to make sense. But how I work with you might be quite different to how I work with somebody else.
0: No, absolutely. I always said when I started this podcast or, you know, in the coaching game that I would never, ever pretend that I've got all my shit sorted like Mm -hmm. ever. And I see myself more like a facilitator now. So I'll bring amazing people like yourself on the podcast that can spread the message through this channel that not only helps me, but obviously reaches other people. I think it's just a, a nice way to do it. It becomes like your network and your community of, like this podcast is dedicated to raising topics like this. Mm. Because of the amount of messages I get from people that say, thanks for talking about that, because it's something I'm so uncomfortable talking about, the fact that you had that conversation. So jealousy and stuff like that, it's quite an embarrassing emotion to talk about for a lot, especially for men, it doesn't feel like you should should experience it, and it brings up that shame shield that you were talking about. You feel ashamed that you're so scared that your partner might abandon you, because it feels weak.
1: And and that's what then creates that anger, where you said, can yeah. I be a part-time psychopath? It's <laughs> it's, it's that bit of, yeah. I'm going into avoidance, I don't care, just leave, just get out, this is not, I can't do this anymore, I just don't want this. Yeah. And then the shield of shame comes up, and then the anxiety yes. attached to myself comes back and then it's like, gosh, I shouldn't have done that, oh God, how am I going to put this right? And I don't feel like I've necessarily got the conflict resolution skills to do it. But then, as you said, I mean, you know, jealousy is an enormous emotion and everybody feels it at different times. But it is is—it is probably the least talked about emotion with children.
0: With children, yeah.
1: Okay. So, again, so bringing that into what we're then brought up with sure. is you're not talking, you know, parents don't tend to display jealousy, mm. um, they don't verbalise jealousy. They might, might verbalise bitchiness, which is generally jealousy hidden i can't believe it and, that, and it's like hmm? yeah. why does that bother you so much yeah um but it's not talked about with kids it's just well let them have it and don't you know and you know or don't be that
0: i'm writing a book at the minute and it's all about jealousy mm-hmm. it's been that it's had that much of an impact in my life it's really damaged it and i didn't know i, I just mm-hmm. didn't know i, I remember having my first girlfriend when i was probably 16 and um, we'd left school, we met at school, and we, we were getting on great, and we'd listen to music together on our lunch, everything was perfect, and then she started a job in the travel agents. Mm. And then one night I was with her and her male boss called her, and it weren't about work, He just, they were just getting on, you know, mates and stuff. And I just remember, I just, I did not like it. Mm. Silent treatment, said to her like, you know, that don't, he can't call again. Mm. And I didn't even know it was a problem. Mm. It just felt normal to react like that, mm. just normal. I didn't even question it. It's only now that I look back and think, fucking hell, that was really unhealthy, mm. really unhealthy. But again, it had never been talked about, never been taught. I didn't even know what jealousy was. I know that sounds crazy. No,
1: it doesn't. It, it at was all. just
0: this is how I feel. Yeah. This is my uh, way of resolving the issue. Yeah. Stick my chest out. Let's storm in. Let's fucking get it sorted. And it worked because he, mm. I kicked off a bit, and he never called again. Mm. So I thought I'd w i would thought I'd solved the problem. Yeah. And then the next relationship, guess what? Got a bit worse. And the one after that, a bit worse. Right. And then before you know it, it's like, fucking hell, there's a problem here. Mm. Big problem. And, and this,
1: what's what's it sorry to jump in, no, but what's no. interesting that is you almost and you corrected yourself, you almost said I won.
0: But that's how it felt. Exactly. Yeah, for because sure. That's
1: what jealousy creates in us yeah. is that feeling of I'm losing. Yeah. I have to win yeah.
0: again. And you do win for that For for the split second in your own crazy mind, you do win for a minute until the very next time. Which, again, unless you want a partner who's just going to sit at home Mm. in a long pair of jeans and a a Wally jumper and never go out, you kind of get what you want and then you lose the attraction anyway. So the thing that you loved about the person, which was their vibrant energy and their enthusiasm for life and the fact that they're bubbly and everyone likes them, it's Mm. like, that's the thing you fucking hate. Because that's the threat. Yeah, everyone likes them. I can't can't have that.
1: that's why freedom is one of my...
0: Values. Yes. I spoke for, about freedom of a week. And the, f- the freedom for me is to not l- let those emotions determine how I behave. That would be real freedom for me. So mm-hmm. I can experience these things without them taking over me and forcing me. And I say forcing. like I know it's my responsibility. I'm, I'm probably using the wrong terminology. But you know what I mean. I did, to be yeah. able to detach would be my freedom. Mm-hmm. That's what I see autonomy as. It's not doing whatever I want in life. It's mm-hmm. being able to control myself yeah. and the self-discipline but this is where i think it's so hard to know who you are if one minute you're the nicest guy on the planet and that's genuine you know, you really are being kind out of nothing but authenticity and then something makes you jealous and you're this horrible fucking person mm-hmm. it's like well, well, who am i mm-hmm. that's where it becomes a challenge to work out because yeah. you think then you're this horrible nasty person you might not be you just can't detach from these emotions
1: yeah and I think you know that's you know, coming back to what you talked about earlier about the thoughts, feelings, emotions, actions, behaviours, you know, we have on average sixty four thousand thoughts a day.
0: Uh, and they're mostly the same, right? They are. Yeah.
1: Absolutely they are just you know, over ninety percent of them are repetitive yeah. yesterday, the day before, the day before. What we also know is that the human brain is wired for a negative bias. Yes. It takes us 0.08 of a second to remember a negative situation, experience, right. anything like that it takes us almost a full 10 seconds, between eight and 10 full seconds, to remember and commit a positive wow. uh, experience to our memory. Yeah, that's so, crazy. So we are, and understandably, we have a negative bias. You know, if, you know, donkeys years ago, if we didn't remember where the poison berries were, and we went back and ate them again the next day, we ain't gonna be alive for very long. Sure. So we have to remember the threats and things like that. But it's, it's that understanding that I have agency over my thoughts because 50% of them will be negative, but 50% of them will be positive. It's up to me to tune my brain into which ones come out in big and bold. And for a lot of people, particularly people that haven't been in therapy, the vast majority of their thoughts are very, very negative and they come out like in big, bold font and they see them and they talk to themselves in the most harsh ways. You know, I say to clients, if I had 10 people following you around all day, telling you the worst things you think about yourself constantly on repeat, in less than an hour, you would be sitting in the corner of the room crying, going, oh my God, please make this stop. And yet that's what's Mm. going on inside our heads. And whereas the positive thoughts tend to come out in this sort of smaller, fainter font and we just don't, we don't recognise them, we don't see them as much. And it's about tuning in, you know, and again, it comes back to values. The more I do things that are, trustworthy, or of me trusting other people, or showing freedom, or or, um, honesty, or love, the more I'm fueling the positive narrative that I hear in my voice all of the time. And I tune into that stuff more and more, and as time goes on, the more I do it, the more I see it. And the less likely I am, actually, to get triggered in a negative situation, because now I've got more of a balance of positive experiences where I've shown I can trust myself, than I have
0: of negative ones. No, that's brilliant. I'd love you to come and speak to the guys inside my coaching program because the way you articulate the benefits of, of these things is far superior than what I can do. So I know the advantages of every day. I sit at the end of the day and I write five to ten things that are I would call wins or that are you know, behaviors that I've displayed that I'm, I'm happy with. So you, you start to stack up evidence that you promote these things, that you mm. do these things. And the cool thing about that is if you can't find the wins in your day, you either open your eyes wider or you start to create things that would be good. So like I say, if you want to be a guy who's takes care of himself, you actively say, well, what can I do today that would display that? Yes. So it would be amazing to get you into the group if you would like to would do that to, and yeah. speak to the guys on a, on a private level um, about yeah the importance of how we can change our behaviors and thoughts. Mm-hmm. Cause that would be that would be brilliant what's next for for you now like because like i've got a list of your qualifications and achievements, and it's amazing so yeah what what is what is next for you
1: um, i I guess i don't have a firm kind of like right this is what i 'm on to achieving um you know one of the big things for me is 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 being a mum at the moment that's oh. that's really important to me um as well as obviously being able to pay the bills and all of those of sorts of things. Um, You know, you asked earlier about, you know, do you ever feel ready to be a parent? I think, for me, it was understanding there's a massive difference between, I want to have a baby, versus I want to be a parent. One is a possession, I want to have this thing. Mm. The other is, who do I want to be? Yeah. And that was the place that I got to. I was never actually particularly like, oh my god, I want a baby. I was just like, I just got to point where I was like, I really, really want to be a parent. I want to experience that. I know it's gonna be really, really Mm. challenging. I didn't take an easy route with it either, but that's for another day. Um, but um, but I, I think so. I think that's that's you know that's really important to me. Um, I think it's it's continuing to look after myself, um, and I think it's it's the the family side of things has changed a lot for me in the last couple of years. So that's that's massively um, a focus for me. But I think professionally, um, it's and I say sorry in a good way. It's changed. Yes. It makes it oh, yeah. I assumed. Yeah. Um, but, um, but, uh, I think sort of professionally for me, it's I would like to get to a point where I'm able to raise the platform a little bit more. Uh, my work with SafeLine is is fundamentally important to me. To me, that's a lifelong relationship. Sure. Um, you know, for very understandable reasons. Um, but I think where I can to you know just to continue helping people and to kind of get the word out there and to share tools and techniques that could help people in in any way, you know, just using media and things like that. Um, But it's to keep doing what I'm doing. I did look, I was supposed to be doing my master's, um, but family life took over and I was like, I've I've got to make a choice here between doing a master's and, and... and uh, being a mum, and uh, being a mum one, and, that and that's fine, and that was the right decision. But I would ultimately still love to get towards doing my PhD at some point. That's really cool. Um, so, yeah. So that's yeah.
0: Fun. I mean, we won't go into this because, again, I could speak to you for hours, and this would be oh, a different basically. topic. But I think, like, parent is so undervalued. that like, You know when people say, like, one of my main goals is to be a parent? I'm like, I can't think of anything more inspiring than just having positive relationships that impact people's lives, whether it's parents or not. Just... Mm like you said during lockdown like when you take away those relationships we, mm. for me there's nothing more important yeah career is important to me but it's nowhere near as important as who i am and the impact that i have on other people yeah. there's nowhere near i don't care what anyone says like career is just one thing it's not who you are yes it's just oh, one thing uh,
1: yeah absolutely and i think i think that's why being a parent is is so important to me because that's where I get challenged to be the best version of me the most, sure, I get and that. that's where I've seen the most, not the most growth, but I think to be a person that I, you know, having had a lot of friends that I really respect and admire, and they all had their, their kids earlier than me, and watching them go through that, and just thinking, God, if I could be a parent like that, if I could be like that, having felt that I was just a shell for so long, mm. to live in a world now where every day, I go, I don't think I'm that different to the things, the qualities that I have respected and admired in my friends for so long. Um, that is incredibly rewarding to me. And, and you know, in a kind of, it could probably sound a little bit egotistical as in like I'm a parent because it makes me feel good about myself. But actually the self-development for me that has come from that is is so incredible in terms of the evidence of I can be a normal person. And for so long, I didn't feel like a normal person at all. So to to get there and say, I think I'm functioning like all the other adults that I see is I find that just hugely rewarding because that's more of that positive um, information, those positive experiences, those positive memories of me continuing on my self-growth. Yeah,
0: absolutely. All the time. Whenever there's someone that you see that you respect or admire, like if anyone ever messaged me and say, Alex, I respect you for doing the podcast, I always say, well, what, what do you respect about it? What do you like? And then they'll they'll flag out something, and I'll say, you know, well, where does that show up in your own life? And it always does. Mm. You know, if I respect something in someone, it's either because I have that quality or it's because I want more of that quality. Mm. So I think it's it's cool to look around at the parents and say, well, why do I like the way they're parenting their child? What do I respect about them? What do I admire about them? Because it's in you, Mm. and it's probably a good sign of where we should be putting some of our attention. It's like, oh, I respect the fact that that person's patient and empathetic. Maybe that's who I want to be a little bit more of as well.
1: And I think I used that a huge amount yeah, with my sensible. friendships was when I was not feeling like I was a normal person. Um, I think I looked at my friendships a lot. I think the other thing that I, I I do respect myself for is is my marriage. Yeah. Um and and actually having a really, really healthy relationship with someone and the challenges that come with that and how we navigate it and how I see on a daily basis that I think about how I'm gonna communicate that. How i am gonna phrase that? What am I gonna say? What do I want out of it? I always go into things with, how do I want, what do I want at the end of this? How do I want the other person to feel? And how do I want to feel? That influences how I communicate enormously.
0: Makes total sense to me. So I'll go away today and go, well, what do I like about Lydia? Okay, she she spoke really clearly and articulate. Well, that's something I wanna get better at. Mm. Um, Yes, is obsessed with growth and learning. Oh, that's what I really do you know what I mean so it's yeah. the answers are always there if we open our eyes I've got one more question if that's alright because we've, yes. really, we've nearly done two hours
1: okay oh amazing wow correct. gosh that's gone so oh, No, it's been, it's been wow. really cool. I knew
0: it would be cool because when you say you're a psychology nerd I was like we're going to have some fun it'll be cool yeah no it has it's been awesome this is a, a traditional one that often okay. like people go oh I need time to think but yeah what does Lydia Hall need to work on now to become uh, a better person or where do you put your energy now in, in terms of your growth and development
1: um, I think I think it probably comes across a few different facets for me um, I think intellectually I need to feel challenged um, I would I'm looking forward to the girls being of an age where I can um, perhaps step up the physical health side of things there are some things I'd like to achieve there okay. um, things that I haven't ever tried before that I think would be really good Um, I think for me I have a tradition of on New Year's Eve doing a mind map for what are the things that I would like to move towards not to necessarily achieve because sometimes that's I'm not very good with a very clear Mm. goal you know, people always say, oh, you'd be really good in sales. I'm like, I wouldn't, because as soon as you give me a target, I'm like, well, oh, I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what are the things that I would like to move towards in the coming year? And I think that sort of a practice really helps, just guide me. It doesn't, doesn't it's nothing that I hold myself to in an awful way. And there were years where the same things were on there year after year, and I wasn't getting any close to them. And then suddenly one year it dropped, and it was like, yep, I've achieved that hmm. now, or I've got much closer to it, or I'm on the road to that. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I think it's just very multifaceted. I think I, I I like to look at all the different aspects of my life and take responsibility for them. You know, one of the things that I learned massively in my therapeutic journey as a client was the wounds were not my fault, but the healing of them was my responsibility, and and that is something that I hold to, which is. I am responsible for myself and I, I really, really want to like myself, so what do I need to do to, to make sure that that keeps happening?
0: Um, Are you there at that level now where you can totally be like, I really like who I am?
1: Yeah, pretty much, yeah.
0: What's What's in the gap between pretty much and yeah, all in?
1: Um. Sure, there is anything to be honest, so maybe maybe the answer to that question is that I am there. I do like myself, I have a lot of respect for who I am I lot have a lot of respect for what I've tried to do with my life and and how I've sort of challenged myself, you know, given certainly the childhood experiences and how much that damaged me to be at where I'm at now. I feel like I'm absolutely winning yeah that's awesome
0: well, that's really that's really cool to hear. I feel like we just touched the surface today like there's so much. Yes. that we could have talked about like yeah. from your yeah your experiences as a youngster to the work that you do with safeline to your tedx talk but i think that was but thanks so much for coming in i had a it's, real blast as as you can absolute, tell by my big smile
1: it's been an absolute pleasure i've you really enjoy it? enjoyed it good. really really enjoyed oh, thank it thank yeah. you very much yeah, you're fantastic to talk with
0: oh cool well thank you cool, cool. excellent right. that was really good